The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. In today's episode, we look back on some of the meaningful conversations that helped us through this tumultuous year and the moments we grew kinder in 2020. We started the year with a powerful conversation with Angela Duckworth, author of the New York Times bestseller, Grit. Angela spoke to us about the importance of developing a sense of purpose beyond oneself. You know, when you think about achieving a certain goal, you know, it may or may not be a purposeful goal. So what is a purposeful goal? A purposeful goal is a goal that has an impact on people who are not you. Right. So you could, for example, just for yourself, want to be able to run a five minute mile. Right. Like it's just a personal goal. It's really important to me. That's not immoral. It's just, you know, your own personal goal. But when you talk about a purposeful goal that has meaning beyond yourself, these are things like wanting to bridge the achievement gap between, you know, poor and rich children, or it could be something, you know, really close to heart. Like, you know, you have a neighbor who you can just tell isn't doing well, and you just really want to help them. If you ask me about, you know, what I see as like really the secret to happiness, it is very hard to find a person who is actively pursuing purposeful beyond the self goals you know, who's depressed and unhappy with their life. And so when I find these people who are pursuing goals that are beyond the self, you know, sometimes they're very rich, sometimes they're very poor, but they're all extremely gratified. I mean, they feel like life is abundant. And so it's one of those paradoxes. You know, I actually think one of the challenges, one of the problems, I'll just say it, you know, more candidly, like with the way American childhoods are designed, it's they're very selfish. It's like, oh, you know, you're going to learn to read and write for yourself. You're going to learn to go to college. I hope you get a high SAT score for yourself. You know, that will help you get a better job for yourself. But I think human nature is very hardwired to actually care about other people. And I think young people of all ages, you know, five, six, 15, 17, you name the age, these girls and boys in our lives, our children, they want to contribute to other people's lives. And that's not just my observation. There's solid scientific research showing that young people have a very strong and a very often unrequited desire to contribute meaningfully to the lives of others. We very rarely give them that opportunity or ask them to do that. Our hosts, Andrea and Mia, also shared stories from their lives about the ups and downs of teaching kids to be brave. When Silas asked me about being brave, like, because we read about it in books and things, he says, you know, what is being brave? And I tell him it's knowing something is going to be hard, but it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you do it even though it's hard or, or, you, don't want sca- to. or you don't want to, but you know it's right. So you right. do it. Did I tell you about the spider incident? Yeah. <laughs> he, like, ran away I love from this the story. Nest no, you have spiders. to say it again. It was like, I love this story. We discovered a giant spider behind our couch, but also an army of various types of spiders. Apparently, that's a thing they do that's called a community of spiders, where there are different types of spiders, but they gather together to share resources, which is like terrifying in and of itself. Yes, but we it found is. it behind the couch. We were looking and for it was a there for a long time. It had must have, I mean, <laughs> yes. And there was obviously like, I mean, the big one was really big. Yeah. 
And I was like, that's the general. (laughs) (laughs) There's a toy back there. And I kind of lowered Silas behind the couch by his ankles to get the toy because it was far enough away that he wouldn't which he totally did. And then <laughs> then I decided we were going to get rid of these spiders. So they got their flashlights. I pulled the couch out a little, very slowly. They're shining the flashlights down. I get the vacuum cleaner, but I have terrible spatial reasoning. I just, I can't always tell if it's going to be long enough or fit or whatever. Right. It totally wasn't. So I stick it down there. I turn it on. It doesn't get a single spider to start. And the spiders scatter. And the kids scream like, My daughter drops her flashlight down, falls backwards off the couch. (laughs) Silas and her both are sort of screaming. Then I readjust. I get them sucked up into the vacuum. (laughs) They're sucking up in the vacuum. The back door of the vacuum bin pops off. The spiders fly backwards into our faces. Like they're just, we're just being pelted with spider bodies. They continue to scream. The kids bolt up the stairs. Sage runs right into a kitchen chair, which falls over, pinning her underneath. So she's screaming, pinned under a kitchen chair. (laughs) And I yell, I was just sort of like, it's so ridiculous that I'm amused. And I jokingly yelled, their backs, you cowards. (laughs) Because they were retreating from the pelting of spiders. And Silas just stopped at the bottom of the stairs and he turned to me and had like immediate tears in his eyes. And he said, I am a brave boy. CEO of Girls, Inc., Stephanie Hull, talked about the positive impact out-of-school time programs have on the lives of young people. I think out-of-school time activities are really the best way to show young people the world. That's where you get to explore things. You can try things on. It doesn't have to be that we've identified you as a mathematician. And so you're in math school every day after school. Out of school time allows you to dabble and to experiment and to find different passions and to switch gears a little bit. I think that it seems to be true, and this is not a research-based statement, but it seems to be true that children of lower income who are in schools that may be failing have less and less opportunity to really just be children and to explore. They're having to think about safety. They're having to think about food. They're having to do things that children really shouldn't have to do to survive. And I think out of school time is another hour that allows you just to be a child, just to maybe to daydream, to hang out with friends, to talk about things, to play with things, and to have those resources that really should be a right. So I think about neighborhood schools, because those are the places that are more likely to say, we just can't provide all these resources, we're just turning it over to somebody else. And resources are not really being brought to bear in the areas that I think are most important. I really believe in time to be together with mostly children, but then a supervising adult who's well-trained and thoughtful about, you know, what kids need to do, not just to be academically successful, but to grow up to be good people. And the really the only way you can do that is if adults will invest in you and sit down with you and tell you, this is how I came to be a good person. This is what I think about when I make decisions. This is how I think about wanting to be treated and how I think about treating people. I think that teachers are really burdened with everything that they have to teach you to pass your academic standards. I think out of school time is a really nice opportunity for people just to relax a little bit and to think about the other things about being a good human being. Founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, Monique Morris, shared how one school reimagined its strategies to improve student behavior and create better outcomes for children of color. Monique, it makes me think about some of the stories 
from your new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, in which you do highlight some of the examples of schools that are working. And I would love to hear some of the stories that you think our listeners would like to hear. I know I found several Mm -hmm. very inspiring. (laughs) Right. Thank you. Push out, I think, and much of the research and developing scholarship on the topic have really spent a lot of time making the case for this investment. But for me, I really wanted to move on to say, yeah, we know our girls are worthy and I'm not going to debate that anymore. What I want to do is demonstrate (laughs) that our girls are also experiencing some different outcomes when our educational systems set that intention to do so. So I wrote Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues differently than I've written other books. I think you may have noticed it's written more in keeping with tradition of our musical traditions. And so there are tracks instead of chapters and interludes that include statements from practitioners, people who work with young people, work with girls, black and brown girls, very intentionally that share their ideas for success and demonstrate, you know, really the wisdom of those blues women who used to be truth tellers and continue to be truth tellers in many ways that are liberative and that can free us from the traditions of oppression that many of our institutions continue to embed in the lives of young people. So one of my favorite stories, and I start the book with this, is really what's happening out of Columbus, Ohio, at the Columbus City Preparatory School for Girls. And I had just a few minutes to talk about it in the TED Talk, but the book gives me more of an opportunity to explore. And the forthcoming film, Push Out, the documentary, gives us even more opportunities to demonstrate for the public that this is something, the work that Stephanie Patton is doing in Ohio is really just extraordinary. But You know, one of the things that Stephanie Patton, the principal of the Columbus City Prep School for Girls, has done is work with her team to co-construct a way of engaging with girls that acknowledges their humanity, but also doesn't seek to just modify behavior outside of a discussion about the structure of the school and the decision-making that can take place in the school. So much of how we talk about modifying student behaviors or addressing some of these issues of concern around behaviors have to do with what we might fix in that student, right? What we might change, what we might seek to do to get them to revisit what they have done without a deep consideration for the policies and conditions that might have triggered this young person to behave the way that she has. What, you know, Stephanie has done in her school is really to take a deep look at not just the practices around responding to negative student behavior when her students do engage in some conflict, but to also really think about how they might restructure the formal responses to those behaviors such that they are not criminalizing or that take into consideration all the things that may have contributed to her decision-making at that moment. They have rethought how they use in-school suspensions. They don't even call it that. You know, They really try to move into a space where they're using every opportunity as an opportunity for learning and every opportunity as an opportunity for them to explore what might be a missing component in this child's life. They've provided spaces in the schools, not just to remove a child from class without instruction, but anytime that child is out of 
classroom instruction time if she's not taking a moment and taking a breather and meeting with an adult to get her regrouped and ready to go back into the classroom. She's in a space where she is still doing work with a special tutor that is then reviewed by the principal herself. They have daily meetings where they set goals with students. They have a safe person for each student, so a trusted adult that the student can go to if they're in a moment of crisis. They you know, have really tried to think about how to operationalize this practice of demonstrating value in each child and seeing each child. And it's really extraordinary. Her numbers, the suspension rates, the incident rates with respect to bullying and insubordination have all plummeted just by building relationships with young people and doing these kinds of intentional activities that really provide an opportunity for growth and for the young people themselves to recognize who they are and what they're capable of doing. So that's you know one of my favorite examples of a school that saw a problem, had leadership that said, we need to do something different and set out to actually change not only what they were doing, but how they used the policies not to further punish, but to reconcile the harm in a child's life such that she can reconnect with school and get back to the business of learning. We spoke with one of Committee for Children's product managers, Rachel Cam, about how adults can care for their social and emotional well-being throughout the pandemic. One thing that I've seen a lot of is the kind of motivational, take this time for self-improvement pieces, which I just resent every time I see them. Unfortunately, <laughs> me I mean, too. I just am like, really, with everything else, you want me to like tap into my creativity or start yo- a new routine on yoga or something? I'm just like, please, I need a minute to adjust. And I think what you were saying earlier, Rachel, about routines is something I've really honed in on. I had to do a writing piece for Committee for Children recently, and I, I was like, everybody sent me all these schedules, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, dude, the, ske- the schedule is the thing. And it blew up in my face right away. Like it just was not every day is going to be a little bit different. We haven't worked out what that's going to look like. And I reverted to habits and routines because yeah. I was like, I can apply the schedule after I've reset some of these things. Like before my kids were in school, I had to do this there. You know, we get up, we have breakfast. There's an order we do things in. We don't care about what time it is necessarily. When we get up, we do these things. And so I've kind of reset to do that. And I feel like it's taking all my energy just to do that. Yeah. You know, Andrea, something you said there, I, I want to acknowledge that I'm looking and people are doing all of these creative things and they're being so productive. And, oh, I built a shed. I cleaned out my garage. I'm doing ceramic flowers, you know, and I'm kind of in the same boat with you going, wow, I just have to handle my own mental anxiety right now. I have to just get centered and try to accomplish the things I need to accomplish. And I'd say it's especially trying for those adults that have um, school-age kids at home. Your work automatically just doubled. And you're not only trying to help, you're trying to take care of yourself, but you're also trying to provide some kind of normalcy for your family and for your children. And so it's a lot of stress for those people working at home. I think about that. And then I think about teachers trying to teach remotely while they have their own kids at home. Why? I'm just like, that is... That sounds like 
such a stressful situation. These educators that are trying, even if they're not actively teaching through some sort of platform, my son's teacher just sent out an email today with, you know, here's what we're going to focus on. Here are the activities I put together, the thought that it's taking for her to put those things together because Seattle is doing more sort of email and activity pushouts because they, from an equity lens, want to make sure that things are as accessible as possible to as many kids as possible. I just think like all of the time that they're having to spend to adjust their teaching practices while they might have young kids at home, while going through maybe caring for parents and then their own individual stress. So I just imagine that's a lot for them. Yeah. So what I would like to say to that, since this is a Grow Kinder podcast, be kind to yourself. This is really important. This is, and be mindful educators, people with young kids, they're trying to take care of everyone. So be mindful of compassion fatigue. This is when you're taking on everybody's hurts and anxiety and stress, and it can be really traumatizing for yourself. So it's really, really important, you know, that you're eating well, take a moment, just go to a room, have a little, have a little moment to yourself, read a book. It's more important now than ever. We work through different ways to support anxious kids during a crisis and discuss what role kindness plays during this time. So what are some things we might say just during this period of time where anxieties across the board are probably heightened for parents and for kids? Like, What are some things that make a difference, do you think? I think one thing, this is maybe diverging a little bit from your question, but I talk to a lot of friends. Like one of my things that keeps me sort of sane is I do a lot of Zoom social hours with Mm -hmm. friends. Every night I do them. And I have friends with kids of a variety of ages. And the ones who have younger kids who are trying to teach them at home are just across the board going nuts. And it is so stressful for them. And it is so stressful for the whole family. And I think I wish there was some really concise bit of wisdom that I could pass on, but mostly I just keep trying to say they're going to be okay. If you don't understand Singapore math, it's okay. If the school isn't doing things exactly how you want, or they're giving them too much work or not enough work, it's just, it's okay. Mm -hmm. If they play Minecraft, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that totally. And I think this focusing on your own and your family's mental wellness should be the top priority. But I myself was a very anxious child and I was very internalizing. So I don't Mm. think it was, it came out in a variety of ways. I did refuse to go to school. I had to be pulled bodily out of the car sometimes to be taken into the school. And I had physical, like I had headaches. I had all these things that I were really related to some deep anxiety I had about being in school and being with other children, I think now. I, you know, I see one of my kids has stomach aches whenever we talk about mm. the remote schoolwork and was having stomach aches going to school. And that's a pretty common sign of anxiety. And didn't mean I didn't make him go to school, right? right? But I did investigate what things might be happening at school that contributed to that anxiety. So I think sort of like thinking about how that can manifest as physical, it can manifest as tantrums, and it's different. The temperament really matters. That was another thing in the article. And I yeah. have a, one child who's very externalizing and one that's very internalizing. And the externalizer, this article made me realize I accommodate more because it is anxiety producing for me 
to deal with those tantrums. Like I just, I started to fear them. So I was like, I'm going to have to take some exposure therapy myself and just power through those tantrums, manage my own anxiety about, you know, the potential that she'll have those. Right. Right. There's a lot of self-management involved in managing the anxiety your kids might feel. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think another thing, I was reading another article about how to help your children be more resilient. And there were some tips about teaching them problem-solving strategies, as opposed to saying kids get really nervous sometimes about going to the doctor, like, am I going to get a shot? You know, as a parent, a lot of people will just want to accommodate kids in the moment and say, oh no, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. But honestly, the research bears out that it's better to say, I just don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about what's going to happen if you do. How would you deal with it if that does happen? If a mistake happens, as opposed to asking why, like, let's say Mm -hmm. something gets broken instead of saying, why, why did you let that get broken? Why did that happen? Why? It's more of like, how question, how are we going to fix that now? What are we going to do to, to fix this going forward and Mm -hmm. teaching them some skills around moving forward, working things out so that Mm -hmm. they have that competency as opposed to sort of living in that ruminating about why it happened or Mm -hmm. if it's going to happen. Yeah. I find that one of the ways that some anxiety for my older child manifests is in sort of just really trying to understand deeply. So the why questions can come in a lot. Like for instance, the most recent thing was wanting to look at the structure of viruses. Mm. Like he really wanted to understand what they look like, how they work, are they alive or not? Can they see, can they, you know, like, is there intention behind what's happening? Right. And he's very interested, but also I know it's because he's thinking a lot about <laughs> the effects of the current viral pandemic. So he, right. so he's manifesting that in questions. And I have this practice of, I try really hard not to lie to my kids. Mm-hmm. I don't make things sound like the worst, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I can say somebody in our family might catch that virus. And if that happens, just like, with anything else that happens in our family, we're going to come up with a plan to deal with it together. We're going to do the best we can to take care of each other. You know what I mean? So I just kind of just say, yeah, that's a possibility because he also asked those questions about death. And I feel like in the long run, I don't want that. I don't want something to have happened. And I told him it wouldn't. And then he not trust me, never again, trust any techniques I might give him to deal with a really emotional situation. So when we talk about death, I say, yeah, everything that is alive dies. That's something that happens. But we humans live a long time. That's also true. You know what I mean? Like on average, human beings have a really long lifespan. That's a lot of birthdays. Right. We don't have to think of what's going to happen then. We can think about things that make us feel good right now. You know, it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. what are some things you can do to deal with that discomfort in the moment if it becomes too much for you? So it's really, yeah, about building those resilient skills and helping they carry those forward, really. What role do you think kindness plays in all of this? It's I feel like <laughs> there's there's such a lack of kindness for parents in some cases and yeah. educators. <laughs> but I've seen more of yeah. that in the like in the response. People are like, oh yeah, this is really hard. But what do you yeah. think kindness, where does kindness come in when you have well, an anxious child? A couple of ways. As parents, we want to be kind to ourselves. It's a really hard job. And I think people second guess themselves all the time and have a lot of fears around not doing it right. A lot of guilt around not being able to do it right, even if they want to and don't feel like they are. So I think that they're practicing self-kindness, self-compassion is really important. 
I think this probably falls more under a category of patience mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to being with children, but trying to remember what it was like best you can to be a little person and to not understand things mm. and trying to extend some compassion and, and kindness to them when you, you could see they're really struggling. They're not having behaviors to make you mad. Right. Even if their intention is to make you mad, it's actually about needing a reaction or attention yeah. of some sort. Right. So yeah. I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm taking away from all this that kindness and compassion are not accommodation. And I think that can, that can be really hard to understand as a parent. And what you just said about having empathy for them. I know myself as a parent, something that happened as soon as I had a baby was I couldn't, for instance, watch movies where babies were stolen or got hurt. Like I suddenly had this really like emotional overdrive kind of thing happening. And, and it sort of followed them. Like now if I watch a movie and there's a kid that, it's about the age of one of my kids and something happens to them, I'm not okay. And it's like, right. and I feel like I should be like, I know it's a movie, but it's, I have an emotional response. And I also feel like, you know, for me, I say this a lot to my spouse who has a different perspective. I think it sounds like the worst thing in the world to be a kid. Like when I, like you have no power, you have, you're just a raw nerve a lot of the time. Like you just, so I have a lot of empathy and I don't want them to feel that like what I imagine, like how intense that feels, I often don't want them to feel that way. But that's not a kindness, like intense feelings are part of being human and managing through those feelings are necessary skills that they have to acquire. We also spoke to co-host of NPR's Life Kit, Anya Kamenetz, about the good, the bad and the ugly around education and screen time. And we've been talking in our family about screen time and issues around that. We also have a lot of conversations with schools and here at Committee for Children about education technology and how that supports student learning in the in the area of social-emotional skill building. What are your thoughts about, or maybe you have examples about how you've seen technology used well in that context or some current concerns around the use of technology and its effect on social-emotional learning? Have you done any thinking about that? A huge amount. And it's very, very complicated and hard to answer in a pithy way. I think the good applications in my books, in chapter six, Screens at School, I kind of cover the waterfront as far as what I've seen, the good, the bad, and the ugly around screens in learning contexts. And I guess what I would say is that in order to have a great educational experience using technology, you need either a very inspired teacher who's a really in love with the technology themselves and just fired up about helping kids explore it themselves. Or you need a very well-prepared learner who has the self-confidence and the self-efficacy to go on a discovery journey themselves. And then you can have all kinds of wonderful outcomes where people are doing deep dives on their interests and connecting with communities and getting very creative using technology and the web. And in the absence of those two conditions, you get something that really is worse than if you didn't have technology. So you get technology used in a substitutive way, not to enhance learning, but really to cut the teacher a break. Um, it's often given, you know, thought of as something that is taking, you know, taking up the time while, you know, allowing the teacher perhaps to work one-on-one with a small, with a smaller group of students while everyone else is plugged in. But it really isn't enhancing learning. And I think we have good evidence now that the humdrum everyday application of computers in the classroom is not enhancing learning. It's not 
not in any measurable way. And the best you can say about it is that it is making schools look more like the modern workplace, including the fact that they are schools with screens, just like offices with screens are plagued with distraction issues and technical issues and other kinds of impediments to getting students on task. Anya, could you share an example, and it could be from your book, of a classroom or school that's doing it really well, that what they're doing is really enhancing learning, kids are engaged, you see the benefits, both academic and social and emotional? Sure. I did a story about Minecraft in the classroom and kind of a community of teachers that had become, you know, a lot of them were Minecraft enthusiasts themselves, and they had built classroom-based servers, and they were enabling students to do everything from, you know, test physics ideas to create a historical diorama within the game and sort of create examples of tools that would be used by certain prehistoric peoples in a specific place. And they sort of had the students shape the geography of the Minecraft world into a map and what we know about what this region looked like at that time. And so that kind of world building exercise is incredible. And it's something that we really can only do in that way in a game. And I think the other dimension to it as well that's easily overlooked is that even when teachers aren't using technology in the classroom, they can be using technology outside the classroom and building personal learning networks of their own to share ideas and amazing innovations are spreading. I mean, an example that I would use with the last two years at NPR, we've done the most viral classroom moments of the year. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are just great examples of teachers bringing their students to the world. And one of them was their social and emotional learning idea, which has spread around partly because of Pinterest and Instagram, which is a check-in poster mm-hmm. at the door, right? Where where students kind yeah. of, in this particular one, it was this a student, one student was appointed, a kindergarten student to greet every other member of the class as they came through the door. And the students, the kindergartners were choosing whether they wanted a hug or a handshake or a high five. And so you just had this mm-hmm. video of this adorable little boy hugging most of his classmates. <laughs> but that's an important social emotional learning idea. So it was, you know, and, and yeah. through that, the medium, I think, of Twitter was shared with, you know, people in 100 countries. Very cool. And I love that you use the example of Minecraft. I don't know if you know, but we in our Innovation Lab at Committee for Children have for the past couple of years been working on a, a Minecraft project with Katie Salen from UC Irvine and her team where they've created adventure games where kids are learning conflict resolution skills in the context of just playing and building and exploring. The thing that's so cool is, you know, to see the rigorous, you know, research outcomes of programs like that. Yep, absolutely. 2020 National Teacher of the Year, Tabitha Rossproy, offered us advice for how educators and families can help make remote and hybrid learning run smoothly this school year. We've sort of said, you know, especially for young children that during this time, hybrid learning or distance learning is really family learning. (laughs) And there doesn't seem to be a a reprieve in sight for some families around that. And I think my own child who was saying is four, when I put her in front of a screen to do circle time, she runs away. There's no way. (laughs) Everything is follow up for her. So I imagine that's a really stressful. And how are you thinking about, you know, and, and especially I think working with parents during this difficult time or families, caregivers in this difficult time, how are you thinking about supporting the social emotional needs of the kids and the families? And are there things that you're doing intentionally around that? 
So sort of my number one piece of advice or what I say that really worked for me is that take every opportunity you can to connect with your children and their families face to face. And that's sort of the complaint that I heard from families who thought that it didn't work out, right? Maybe their teacher was just overwhelmed, wasn't trained for this, didn't know how to connect in this way. But every single chance you can get to see your student's face, take that. And if you can't see their face, hear their voice. And if you can't hear their voice, send them a text message. I mean, there needs to be intentional contact. And for me, for my young learners, that also looks like, you know, I used to do home-based services as a part-time gig on the side with Tiny K, Reach Tiny K. And a lot of that was also a parent coaching model. And so I used a lot of those skills by helping the families set up the learning environment. So that meant me sending home visual aids, picture schedules, stop signs to put on doors where they couldn't go when their mom or dad was working, you know, those sort of things. Like it was about making their home environment conducive to learning, which then set them up for better self-regulation. And it also, it needs to look a lot like checking in with their feelings, what obstacles they're facing, and focusing on solving those problems before you even begin to approach the academic things. Those are some good tips, the structuring of the home learning environment. You're making me think a lot, and I actually work in education, so I can imagine those families (laughs) really appreciated that help. It's so Mm. hard. I work from home now, too, and it's been so difficult for me to manage a routine. I was like, this will be great. I can go back and forth. No, it's so distracting to be at home. So definitely is something that we all need help on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before too. You know, I have a number of friends who are educators and have not though had to teach their own children. (laughs) They're like, I thought I knew how to do this and I don't know how to do this. So, I mean, I think kind of to your point before, it's not even like, it's so different from the profession of teaching, you know, trying to teach your kids at home. It's, it's like a new field, <laughs> even for educators. It is. And you think about how comfortable you want your kids to be comfortable at home. There's a little, a little less structure, rightfully so, in a place where they are known to relax more, where mom and dad come home to relax, where, you know, grandparents might be. And so yeah. it's actually really hard to turn that into the same kind of structure and environment you would get within a classroom. You know, you're making me also think about in doing this work around social emotional learning, there's been this surge toward acceptance of that as necessary in schools and, you know, to support teachers and to support students. And that's kind of moved up from preschool, right? That that was, you know, in preschool and kindergarten, that's part of your work. You're assisting and even in the up to grade three usually. And then I remember there was less acceptance kind of past that point. And people sort of felt like, well, now we're doing the work of school (laughs) when they reach that. And so what's the advice you would give to educators across the board or that like, what could people in education learn from preschool and early childhood education about social emotional learning and its importance or how they kind of bring it into their classrooms? Well, I would remind people that your brain is not even fully formed until you're 24 years old. So you're probably still learning a little bit of everything until that point. And you're learning still after 24, but it's just a little harder to keep it soaked (laughs) in there. It's like acquiring a new language is much harder when you're older, right? Because your brain isn't as spongy and ready to soak those things in. We know that critical brain development happens in early childhood, but that doesn't mean that we can stop teaching some of those critical skills, social and emotional skills, like self-regulation, how to interact with a friend. 
So social emotional skills are not only talking about your feelings, right? I always want to remind people of that because I think that we get a little caught in the word emotional when we talk about it. I almost wish there was another word, but it really is a lot about that regulation piece. So I'm having this big feeling and it's overwhelming me, but now I come to a decision point. What do I do? When we have better self-regulation skills, that leads to better critical thinking skills, which leads to better academic skills, right? And being able to solve real world problems, to solve problems in our relationships or problems in the workplace. And so they really are foundational for other kinds of success in your life. And it is so worth the time investment. And what you can sort of learn from preschool is that it's great to have a curriculum for social emotional and to deliver that every single day. That is sort of the first step. But social-emotional learning has to be a part of the fabric of your classroom. It has to be present in everything that you do. You have to take time to guide students through that learning. So many times I hear parents say, they should know better. Or teachers say, I told them that once. They should know better. But it's sort of just like, you know, I heard it once compared to like you're in an old laundromat and there's a light going out all the time. <laughs> That's sort of how like teenagers' brains are, right? They just like sometimes are flickering on and sometimes off. They sometimes seem so wise and so mature, but other times they're just not accessing those higher level thinking skills of how to self-regulate and how to solve their problems. So we have to help them. We have to teach them just as intentionally as we do anything academic because social skills are foundational to other types of learning. Elementary teacher Rachel Lovett, cousin of our co-host Andrea, inspired us with her insights on the value of empathy and what their grandmother taught them about kindness. So you've seen good effects for your kids. What do you think is needed at the adult level? We talk about social emotional learning like a process. You're never perfect at it. You are always working on it. So what do you yes, think would benefit communication? Yeah. It can't be just communication is not something if you retire and you're like, you know, I've nailed communication. I've got it down. You're lying. Like <laughs> you're not telling the truth because it's just something that we can always be better at. And I think that just at the adult level, buy-in. Mm-hmm. And realizing that there is real worth in treating people kindly. Mm-hmm. There's real worth. There's real value in being aware of how we speak to each other and how we treat each other and how we can lift each other up with our words or we can really put each other down. I think that teachers have to buy in before we get the students to buy in anytime. Training, I think, would be crucial, and there needs to be some sort of accountability in the classrooms that, you know, training has happened and that these things are being implemented. That's my going to get off my podium. Your wish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, be nice to yeah. each other. That's what my, yeah, be kind. <laughs> That's what our grandmother says. Yes. Yeah, I'm hearing you, Nana. Yeah. I hear you. Our, our grandmother has been a nurse for 50 some odd years, 50, probably 55. I mean, she's so been at her current work for so 60 years. She invented nursing. Yeah, so she's been <laughs> a nurse for 60 years, and she was a recognized as a hometown hero in our in our hometowns, a segment that they do on our local TV station. 
in Kentucky. And we, we're so proud of her. We're very proud of her. So proud we're very of lucky her. to have her. She's amazing. Like, we just talk about her for a whole hour. Yeah. Let's start. Or more. Let's just talk I talk about, about her every day. <laughs> so, um, so our grandmother, she was interviewed as a hometown hero, had done all this nursing work. And they kind of said, well, what do you want people, what do people need to take away from this? Like if you had oh, one yes, piece of advice that, and she said, be kind to each other. Yeah, exactly. Just be kind. Just be kind. <laughs> that was her, her big takeaway. And I was like, perfect. That's that's perfect because that's what she really embodies is compassion and kindness. And it's a good thing to embody. Yeah. It's a good thing to it's embody. A, it's a, a lot to live up to that we all we're it's all trying much, to do what to live up to. We can't do it, Nana. <laughs> no, we are. We're gonna do it, Nana. Don't worry. But you know, her her gift to us is thinking about how to make it a more compassionate world, yeah. how to make people safer and healthier and and that that should be something that we're all striving for. So we're, Striving for thriving. That's right. Striving for thriving. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.